Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We are continuing on our study of this paragraph on Paul's explanation of what it means to walk or to live in the light, in the light of Christ, in the light of God's truth and revelation, to be the kind of men and women who are exemplary of what he expects from us. Let me read this paragraph that we have really pulled aside to look at as a series on what it means to walk in the light, to live life in the light. Begins in verse 3. Let me read that for us. Ephesians 5, 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but Instead, even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's begin with a riddle. I think you're going to get part of this riddle right away, but there might be another part that you need to think about. What is something that you can do that God cannot do? Some of you are already saying it. Sin, that's true. That's the, the easier part of the riddle. We can sin, God cannot. That's absolutely true. But there's something else. And it's the heart of the passage we're studying today. Let me give you a hint. Micah 3, 6 says, For I, the Lord... Do not change. God does not change. God cannot change. This would mean he could become better than he is or worse than he is, which is impossible. God cannot become better than perfect, and because he's perfect, he cannot in any way diminish from his holy perfection. We call this the doctrine of immutability. God doesn't change. What is something that you can do that God cannot do? We can change. We can change. But not only can we change, our study of Ephesians has highlighted over and over and over again that God expects us to change and instructs us how to change. We've been learning paragraph after paragraph, verse after verse in our study of Ephesians, that when a person believes the gospel, when that person becomes a Christian, everything changes. Jesus told Nicodemus that following him can only be described in these terms. 
you must be born again, born a second time. You must be a completely new person. You're born again. This means our values change as because of Christ. Our morals change. Our affections change. Our desires change. Our very lives experience a metamorphosis. We become a new person when we believe the gospel and put our faith in Christ. Paul told the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creature, new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Paul's been talking about this change in graphic and dramatic terms in the book of Ephesians. For example, in Ephesians 2, 1 to 5, he begins by saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has made you alive together with Christ. Death to life, that's a big change. Changing from life in the darkness to life in the light is his illustration today. He's already said, put off and put on. Become different than you were. Don't live like you did. Live new lives. Paul describes this change to the Romans like this. Very familiar words in Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is the same word as pleasing, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be, and the word is metamorphosized, be transformed, be transformed, changed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed, be changed. It should be no surprise that Paul circles back to the foundational change that occurs in the life of a believer over and over and cyclically over and over again in the book of Ephesians. In fact, in all of his epistles. But let's be clear from the start this morning. The change that occurs in a believer's life results from the work of the Holy Spirit's presence and power in our lives. This is not an admonition to behavior modification, to doing better, to trying harder. Be good and be better. This is a willing dependence on the work and the presence and the power of the Spirit of God that resides within us to accomplish His will in our hearts. Look back for a moment at chapter 3, verse 14. Talking about this change that's, that's, that's generated by the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in our hearts. Ephesians 3, verse 14, Paul says, For this reason, he's praying, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives this name, that God, that he, the Father, would grant you according to the riches of his glory. That's his resource pool, the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with power through his spirit. See it there? In the inner man, in your, in your decision-making processes, the, the real you so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's the, there's the key. In fact, I think it might be fair that that's, that's perhaps the most succinct definition of a Christian in the writings of Paul. Christ dwells in your hearts through believing, through faith. 
And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So it's the Spirit of God who resides with us in His presence and in His power that generates and motivates everything we need to change. And yet, it's not let go and let God. (laughs) We have to lean into our own choices of obedience. And when we do, and we're relying on what we know of the power and presence of the Spirit of God, what we believe from the Word of God, those come in a perfect confluence to give us the ability to make good decisions and not sin and pursue righteousness. Let's remember where we are in our study of this paragraph. Life in the light. We are walking or living with illuminated purity in verse 3, walking with illuminated decency in verse 4, walking with illuminated circumspection about heaven and hell. That's verses 5 and 6. Then in verses 11 to 14, walking with illuminated exposure. We'll look at that next week. But for today, verses 7 to 10, walking with illuminated sanctification. Sanctification. Look at verse 7 with me. We'll be looking at these four verses, 7, 8, 9, 10. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Though the word is not used in these four verses, these verses are about sanctification. If you were listening carefully during the Sunday school hour, Adam did a great job explaining the holiness of God, that holiness and sanctification are the same thing. It's being set aside from sin and being set aside to God. That's our holiness, our sanctification. It's the process by which God sets a believer apart from the world and sin and our unbelieving past and brings us closer to himself in holiness and in relationship. But we have to be careful here. This, again, is not about behavior modification, It is thinking and acting and living to bring pleasure to Jesus who's alive. This is not a code of ethics. It's a manner of relationship. Oh, sure, ethics follow, but be careful. They do follow, and there's a reason that they follow. These verses, by the way, are pulled along by the final phrase. Sometimes you look at a, at a, a paragraph or a section of Scripture, and, and the end is what draws everything to it. And that's the case in these four verses. Look at the verse 10 for a second. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the goal. That's the apex of the argument. That's the goal as well as the motivation for change. So let's break it down together. Very simple. Two ongoing concentrations for pleasing Christ. If that's the end goal, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, who is Christ, let's talk about what that means. Two ongoing concentrations. These will be ongoing focuses for you and concentrations for you the rest of your life. Two ongoing concentrations for pleasing Christ. First is in verses 7 to 8a. Leave the life of darkness. 
Leave the life of darkness. Verse 7. Therefore, stop right there. Therefore means you got to look at what it's there for, correct? Well, if you go back to verse 1, he's telling us to walk in a manner worthy, live in a manner worthy of the Lord. In verse 17 of chapter 4, he's saying live or walk no, no longer as your unbelieving uh, past would dictate or uh, the world or Gentiles. And he goes into what it means to put off, to put on. Then as the paragraph begins, well, actually, in the, at the end of verse chapter 4, let bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away with you along with all malice or meanness. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God, his beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Imitate God, imitate Christ. And then he goes into, but, in verse 3, immorality, porneia, which is any sexual experience, any sexual thought outside of the marriage relationship between a man and a woman in covenant relationship. All immorality, and then the acting on that, impurity, which is fornication and adultery, or greed, must not be named among you, even be hinted in you. This is proper among saints. And then he says, don't talk about those kind of things. No filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting. Then he tells us the ultimate motivation because heaven and hell are at stake. Knowing all of that, therefore. It's quite a load, isn't it? Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For months, we've been tracking along with Paul's argument of walking with Christ means putting off and putting on, putting off your sinful habits and thoughts, putting on Christ. Look at the core of it back up at chapter 4, verse 22. In reference to your former life, manner of life, you lay aside the old you, the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lying lusts, lying desires, lust of deceits, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's about thinking properly and thinking rightly, thinking biblically. And you put on the new you, the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So now Paul opens up the spiritual chambers of our hearts to tell us why. Why should we do this? How can we do this? And Paul's descriptions here are important to hear with the full weight he is intending. It's about ontology. That's a big word for being. It's who we are and who we were and who we're becoming. Notice very carefully what he says and what he does not say. When speaking of our old lives as believers, the Ephesians' old life as believers, he says that they were darkness, darkness, he doesn't say they were in darkness. He'll, he'll say that in Colossians. Here he says, you were darkness. You were darkness. And then he also says, but now you are light. See that? Not you are in the light. He'll say that in the next phrase. But you are light. This is about who we are and who we were. You were darkness. But now you are light. 
In short, our new identities as followers and children of Christ and God create a separation from the world, from our old ways of thinking and living and behaving. So he says, again, do not be partakers with them. We have to ask two questions. Partakers of what and with whom? Well, it's pretty obvious. The why goes back to this sexual sin in particular, the nearest antecedents or, or references. It's, it's what he's speaking of in chapter 5, verse 3. Porneia, any immorality, any impurity, that's fornication and adultery, or greed, that's wanting someone, I think, sexually that is not your spouse, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Don't even talk about these kind of things or joke about these things, verse 4, because these kind of people, the porneia, the immoral or impure person or covetous man who's in idolatry, and then we studied this last time, has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. You don't get heaven. That's what you don't get. And then in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So hell is two things. It's not getting the inheritance of God in Christ, and it is getting the wrath of God. It's horrific. Those people who are in that category, that's the them of verse 7. Do not be partakers are the sexual sins for sure, but I think it goes all the way back to verse 17, not even to live or think or act like the Gentiles or unbelievers or, or your former manner of living and thinking and behaving. By the way, quick footnote. <laughs> Paul is not suggesting that we have no contact with unbelievers or there would be no evangelism. He's saying don't be partakers of unbelievers' sin with unbelievers. See the difference? His concern is that these Ephesian believers do not participate with unbelievers in immoral activities that used to characterize their own thinking and their own living. Why? Why? Because that's not who they are now. That's not who we are now. Here we come to the terms darkness and light. It's parallel to old self and new self. I was watching on C-SPAN, please forgive me, this week. I kind of like to nibble on some things and watch some confirmation hearings sometime. I know that's boring, but just don't judge me. Um, and there was a senator giving a pretty hard time to a court nominee. During that questioning back and forth, the senator said, quote, to the nominee, do you think people are basically good or bad? Well, I just about choked on my taco at that point. I mean, we just got into theology here in the Senate. Do you think people are basically good or bad? And so I'm like turning up the volume. I listened carefully. There was a lot of back and forth on this. They didn't really want to answer the question. This person didn't. And the conclusion after this bantering back and forth between the senator and the nominee was finally, well, people are basically good, and especially Americans. They're basically good. And I choked on my taco again. And I thought, just humorously, what if I had been the nominee? I, I just wonder how it would have gone if the senator had said, it's a senator I really appreciate. And it said, 
Mr. Holland, do you believe people are basically good or bad? So I wrote out what I would have said. <laughs> well, Senator, you always have to address them as Senator when you answer. Well, Senator, I believe that every person is born as a sinner and into sin, and the whole of a person's life is to, is to live, as Paul described in the book of Ephesians, as dead in their transgressions and sins and not having any hope and godless in chapter 2, verse 12. In other words, let Paul answer the question. There's none good, not even one, Paul said to the Romans. What does that mean? Everybody's born in darkness. We are dark. Our hearts are dark. Not everyone's heart manifests itself in the darkest expression of those sins. Not everyone becomes a Hitler, but everyone's life and heart comes dark. It comes that way. You don't teach a two-year-old how to sin. They, they come that way. Verse 8, for you were formerly darkness. Can, can we just talk about the importance of verb tenses in our theology, you were, you used to be. And then he adds, you were formerly, before Christ, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Notice those are ontology statements. You were and you are, not you were in, and you're now in. Spiritual and moral darkness, it's pretty simple. It's the pervasive worldview of unbelievers that walk, chapter two, verse two, according to the course of this world, they think like everyone else does. According to the prince of the power of the air, there's demonic and satanic influence in the way we think, unbelievers think, and the spirit who's now working in the sons of disobedience. It's inclined to disobey God's law and word and not to obey it. Paul says, don't be partakers with them. Parents, can I remind you of a verse that <laughs> probably was in our holster our whole time of raising little kids and certainly in the teen years? 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Do not be partakers with them. It's the same thing. There's obviously a sinister, demonic, and satanic influence here that we're going to understand better in chapter 6. For example, in chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness. Same word. The world forces of this darkness that you are, not just are a part of, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Just put a placeholder in your mind for that when we come back and study it in depth. He's simply commanding that believers are no longer to live as the former, they formerly lived, you were this way. But now you're to live as children of light, not in the darkness of a sinful worldview where everything surrounds, how do I please myself? As we'll see at the end of this passage, is how I would please Christ. Walk no longer as the Gentiles walk, 417 says. No longer. You were formerly this way. Chapter 4, verse 20. You did not learn Christ this way. You walk differently now. Very interesting. He says, adds to that. You are light 
in the Lord. And we're going to talk a lot more about what that means next week because it's an exposing presence in this world. But he gives us some explanation in the next phrase, walk as children of light. Children of light is an unmistakable reference to Christ. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Light exposes, light illuminates. You will know how to live, how to please Christ, how to please God. You will not walk any longer just hoping by intuition that God might somehow save you or preserve you in the end. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. There it is. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. We'll see here in in the next uh, couple of verses that our good works are what it means to walk in the light. Yes, we see the light of the Lord, the light who is the Lord, the Lord Jesus. Yes, we walk in in, in moral, uh, the pursuit of moral excellence. But it really has to do with doing good works. Jesus explained it carefully. That's why the next concentration is exactly where he points. So you leave the life of darkness, you put off, stop formally, you repent. Much more to say about that next week. And number two, you learn the life of light, the way of light, the life of light. Illumination. Verse 8 in the middle, walk, live, that's our workhorse word, walk as children of light. There's a lot of inheritance in children um, language in here. The sons of disobedience are those who are unbelievers. Children of light are those who are believers. Inherit is what children do for uh, a father who's going to leave them possessions after he passes. Walk as children of light. I don't think this is an abstraction. I think this is the person of Christ. Your New American Standard probably capitalizes that word light. I think rightly so. I think it's reference to Christ himself. Walk as children of life. How many times have we said it over the last few months? Live out your profession. Act like what you say you are. This began, this walking in chapter 4, verse 1. Walk, live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing forbearance and tolerance for one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the command to walk as children of light means to live as children of light. The Apostle John helps us here. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, we say we belong to him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It's a parallel passage to exactly what Paul is saying here. John's right in sync with him. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I love that. 
You need to walk in the light just as He is in light. He is perfection. Pursue perfection. But we have an advocate with the Father for not if, but when we sin. Right after that, it says, if your God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we confess those sins to Him. Again, from the pen of John in chapter 12, verse 36 of his, 36 of his gospel, Jesus said, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Same language as Paul. Children of light, so live like it. Saying that God is light means that he is completely devoid of evil in who he is and in how he acts, which means we should strive to be completely devoid of sin and evil in who we are and in how we act. And again, verse 9 is a shorthand application of what it means to live as children of light. For the fruit of the light. Okay, what's it look like? Paul is just so wonderfully explanatory. Okay, walk, you're a child of light. Walk as, as light. Be, be in the light and live like it. And, and you, you kind of scratch your head. You say, that's pretty abstract. What, what does that look like? And so he tells us in verse 9 what it looks like. The fruit of the light. What comes from the light is this. Three Categories of, beha of behavior and obedience. Goodness, all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Ian Hamilton writes, These moral qualities which were perfectly exemplified in Jesus, the light of the world, are to be, listen to this, the public face as well as the private pursuit of God's people. I really like that. The public face and the private pursuit. What's that? Goodness, righteousness, and truth. These values are the opposite of the world's values. Look at the, them very briefly. Goodness. I want to confess. I, I read the, the definition of this Greek word, and, and I looked at two more dictionaries because I thought there's got to be something juicy in there. You know what it means? Goodness. You do nice things. It's the good works that Jesus spoke of. It's the opposite of malice or meanness. And we see that in 4, verse 31 is a summary term for unbelieving attitudes. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with, from you along with all, this is the opposite, malice, meanness. I know this sounds maybe a little bit fourth gradish, but work with me here. It means niceness. Walking in the light means you're a nice person. You're kind. You're gracious. You're emotionally attractive for people and you're pleasant to be around. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is, same word, good for one another and for all people. You're kind to people. You're good. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, to this end we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith and power. They wanted to be good and kind and nice people because of Christ to anyone and everyone they interacted with. I think probably the best synonym for goodness is just kindness. 
The fruit of being a follower of the light is you're, 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 you're kind. Secondly, righteousness. Now we get more theological. This is holy living based on choices to be holy rather than unholy. It's rooted in a relationship with Christ. 1 John 2, 29. You know that He is righteous. You know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. So we imitate Christ. We become Christ-like. We imitate His character. This is back to, chapter, uh, to verses 1 and 2. Imitate God and love just as Christ. Righteousness is imitating the character of God, holiness. And then truth. The basic word has to do with honesty, reliability, trustworthiness, integrity. It's the contrast to the world's hypocritical, deceptive, and false way of living. That's the way of darkness. It's also a reference to living according to God's truth, which is contained in His Word, the Bible. Now, all of this can sound dangerously legalistic and works-based without verse 10. True change is grounded in a living and personal loving relationship with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, to please Him. You know, the, the illustration that Paul's going to use in chapter 5, verses 22 to 33 is that there, it's the only reciprocating analogy in the New Testament. And by that, I mean you have two things that are compared to each other, and they're both said to illustrate the other. Marriage illustrates the gospel in that passage, and the gospel illustrates marriage. It's a wonderful uh, picture. Well, because of marriage, I think it's, it's, a, it's not a stretch to say, analogically, you know, if I want my wife to enjoy our marriage, would I say, well, I'm, I'm faithful to you because I want to be faithful to our marriage, or faithful to you because I love you? Hear a difference there? Or I, I'm going to... I'm going, to be, um, I'm going to spend time with you uh, this week. We're going to have a date night because that's just the duty of my marriage. Versus, I can't wait till Thursday when we get to be with each other. You hear a difference? One is ought to, one is want to. And the want to should begin helping the ought to. The ought to never goes away. Let me just tell you, there's so many times I obey out of ought to. I ought to do this. I don't have this fuzzy, like, euphoric, I love Jesus, therefore I'm going to fight this sin. It's like, I can't do that. And the love of Jesus comes in there at different stages, at different temptations. But sometimes the ought to is strong and it should be. But what Paul's talking about here is the want to. I want to please my Savior The essence of the Christian faith is trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. If you don't have that one underlined in your Bible, you might want to get your pen out. <laughs> what a great phrase. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Cross-stitch that for the house. Put that on the chalkboard. That's a great passage. And it's a ringing theme for Paul. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. 
Colossians 1.10, that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Bearing fruit in every good work, just what he said in, to the Ephesians, increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 3.20, children, be obedient to your parents in all things. You know why, kids? Because that is pleasing to the Lord. That's why. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you, as you received from us instructions on how you ought to walk and please God that you excel still more. So Paul's instruction was, make sure you're pleasing him. And this goes back to verse 17 of chapter three, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Learning Christ in chapter four, verse 20. The key verb is learn, learning to Please, Christ. That means it's something we study, it's something we have to discover, and it's something we have to absorb. It's also something you don't intuitively know. That's why you have to learn it. That we learn what is pleasing to Christ, to the Lord. That's Christ. We don't know without Scripture, without having our minds saturated with Bible. To know Christ more is to desire to please Him better. So learn and study and memorize the truth about his deity, his character. Learn about his claims and his teachings. Study his miracles and his sufferings and his death and his resurrection. Understand his responses to life and to death, his grace, his influence, his virgin conception, his all-consuming satisfaction and the gospel that is about him, through him, and to him. Say it again. To know Christ is to desire more to please him better. John Calvin said, He whose life differs not from that of unbelievers has learned nothing from Christ. For the knowledge of Christ cannot be separated from the mortification of the flesh. I was studying this all week and I kept hearing this, this echo. You ever said something like in a canyon or in a, in a, in a beautiful cathedral and it echoes, echoes? The more I study it, I hear this echo, echo, echo. I, I bet you've heard the echo too. Did you hear the echo of Psalm 1? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor seat, sit in the seat of scoffers. There's a slowing down and a planting there. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers, but the wicked are not so they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. There's our word again. But the way of the wicked will perish. Just a parallel thinking of two ways to live and two endings. Paul summarized this to the Colossians in a parallel passage when he said, He rescued us from the domain of darkness. And he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What can you do that God can't, you can change. So how do you change? I have some bullet points to myself here. I must want to please Christ. If you don't, it won't be lasting change. I, I have to change because of him 
I want to change because of him. I must want to please Christ. Secondly, I must want to change. Do you hate the sin and love righteousness in your life and you want to actually be transformed? The desire has to be there. And we're going to get to this later in the chapter. But you also said, I must identify specific motivations for sin and generate new motivations for righteous decisions. What are my specific motivations for sin? What do I want to enjoy? What do I want to gain? What, it's all selfish. And transfer to generate new motivations to what would Jesus think? What does Jesus think about this? Is it pleasing him? Is it displeasing him? Does that matter? Listen, we sin because we want to enjoy the thrills of sin and we live to please Jesus because we want him to enjoy us. We want to please him. That means we have to have biblically saturated minds. We have to read our, this is the read your Bible more sermon. You're right. And prepare for a fight. You can only do this if you know the Lord Jesus. If you don't, what a day to come and cash in a life of darkness and receive from him a life of light. In a minute, our prayer room will be open to be able to talk to someone about that if that's your desire in your heart. Can I just give you a little few sentences from my friend who's now in glory, David Pallison? So helpful. He says this, People change when the Holy Spirit brings the love of God to their hearts through the gospel. Whoever receives the spirit of adoption as God's child learns to cry out, Abba, Father. People change when they see that they are responsible for what they believe about God. Wow, that's powerful. You'll change when you know that you are responsible for what you believe about God. People change when the truth becomes clearer and brighter than previous life experiences than our sin. And then this sentence. We change when our ears hear and our eyes see what God tells us about himself. See the relational value of that? We're not trying in our church, in our fellowship groups, in our, our care groups, we're, we're, we're not trying. We're not trying to live better lives. We're trying to live better lives based on a better relationship with the one we want to please. Can you imagine? I told you about my friend who just unexpectedly had a heart attack and went to glory. What, what would it be like to throw a crown at Jesus' feet, to have your face buried on the ground in the throne room of heaven, and for him to lift your head and say, well done, good and faithful servant. We can know what that's like by being a good and faithful servant 